This is a conversation I had with renowned journalist Nihat Dixit on the current protests in India, the bigoted policies of India's far-right government, the BJP, and how protesters and activists, in particular feminists, are using techniques and methods of dissent to oppose the India right-wing's toxic ideology. Niha's a great guest to have on as she's reported throughout India. Her work has been featured both in international media and uh, India media extensively. And she is an expert guide for us as she takes us through these ideologies, how they manifest themselves in day-to-day society in India, and most importantly, how they're built up. So the history of something like the right wing in India and how it's managed to come to power in the dramatic fashion it has. And within this knowledge contains the key to opposing these bigoted ideologies, both within India, but also where we see uh, supremacy in other countries, be it a China, a US, a UK, a Brazil, and so on. If you like what we're doing, please support us. Spread the word about this podcast. Uh, We also had an amazing episode with China expert Eli Friedman on labor activism in China. Um, Any help we can have in sharing those episodes is great. You can go to our YouTube where we put out uh, great video interviews and other video content. And of course, check out our main website, asiaarttours.com, for more about what we do and our programs connecting people to the activists, academics, and fascinating people we know in Asia. All right, here's a conversation with an incredibly fascinating person, journalist Nihat Dixit. I hope you enjoy. contact with your work through uh, Priyanka uh, Borupjari's article in Columbia Journalism Review on fixers. Um, I'm wondering if you could give us a a brief introduction into your background uh, as a journalist, as an activist, if you consider yourself one, and then building off Ms. Borupjari's article, could you explain why um, this question about press freedom and journalism is incredibly important uh, in India today. I would say uh, thank you, first of all. Uh, Why Priyanka's article was more important is because I'm glad that somebody finally wrote about this uh, kind of uh, Western dominance over journalism and not seeing people from the other, from the developing countries as uh, equal journalists, and which is why a lot of people from the West come to our parts of the world and end up calling us fixers and which is extremely derogatory and which is extremely hierarchical. So that's how Priyanka's article in in the light of what she wrote that was important. And a lot of people in the developing world, journalists, are fighting for the use of such derogatory words and acknowledging us as journalists because each time, like you said, you came across my my work because it was published in Columbia Journalism Review. But uh, till the time something is not acknowledged in the Western media, it ceases to exist. So that is what 
Priyanka's articles about uh, talking about uh, press freedom in India. Uh, for the last five and a half years, we've seen several killings of journalists in India, uh, lots of attacks, physical attacks, online trolling, doxing, uh, and we have been dealing with it for quite some time now. And uh, the problem is that it's quite institutionalized and the current political party in power, the current government we have is extremely dismissive of press media and press freedom considering we are the largest democracy we've not this is the first time in history when our prime minister in this case narendra modi has not given a single press conference to journalists our central ministers have normalized words like prostitutes for journalists who do their jobs because they critique the government and we have fallen uh, seven uh, points down in the press freedom index so that is something that we are constantly dealing with and the kind of corporate political nexus that uh, exists in India right now. The same corporate houses that fund the political parties in power are the ones that own major shares in the mainstream media in India, and which is why there's a lot of censorship within newsrooms. We uh, People within the newsrooms are categorically told not to report certain kinds of stories that are critical of the government. And whoever does it independently, whoever, so a lot of Journalists are choosing to work as independent journalists because of the censorship that exists within newsrooms. And if you're attached to a newsroom, then you can't publish certain kind of stories. And even if you can, you can only publish opinion pieces and not uh, ground reports or investigative reports that are driven by facts and figures and evidence. So it's increasingly becoming difficult to put uh, honest information out in the public domain, and which is why we are suffering right now. Part of our project is we do try to center media that does not come through um, these sort of main Western channels. In India, um, has phenomenal local English language reporting, um, and uh, it's something that I uh, am belatedly getting to. But I'm I'm trying to shout from the rooftops whenever I can in these interviews. There's some really fantastic journalism uh, going on the ground there. Um, uh, in local publications. Um, and uh, we'll actually be quoting quite a bit from uh, local India-based media today in our, in our chat with you, uh, articles you've written. Um, first, though, I, I do have to cite one more uh, Western publication. Well, actually, I guess MENA publication, uh, Al Jazeera, because I want to talk specifically about um, the actual violence. Um, and it may be that in your reply, you'll need to center it in a historical way based on your recent reporting. This is not something that's emerged from nowhere. This is a long culmination of, of, of violence and, and um, civil strife um, in India's contemporary history. The quote I want to center uh, is from your article explaining specifically about rape and violence against women. Um, and I'm quoting in full here. Hindu-Muslim communal riots during the partition of India in 1947 and the 1992 riots right after the Hindu right demolished Babri Masjid, an ancient mosque in Uttar Pradesh, set a gruesome precedent for systemic rapes. Women's bodies were used as proxies for combat to establish the supremacy of one religion over the other. End quote. That's some horrific poetry, um, but it, that metaphor you choose to use very vividly captures um, the sort of technology of violence uh, and and how women are caught in that violence uh, in contemporary India. 
I'm wondering if you could talk about, I know you've been on the ground reporting in India uh, during these protests, uh, the anti-CAA uh, Citizen Amendment Act protests. Could you talk about uh, where the violence is taking place? What does it look like in terms of uh, BJP supporters, as well as the state, as well as the army? And then how are we seeing that violence specifically target women who are once again being proxies uh, in this uh, this conflict brought about by religious uh, supremacy. See, there is a, like you pointed out, there is a history to the kind of sectarian violence that has existed in India that has had roots in uh, Hindu-Muslim uh, uh, riots, that has been violence against Dalits, that has been violence against tribals in India. And a lot of it comes from the fact it's rooted in the patriarchal belief that women are owned by their communities. Women have no agency over their own bodies. And which is why if you look at partition or if you look at the Gujarat 2002 riots, which when the current Prime Minister Narendra Modi, he was the chief minister of that state called Gujarat, where the riots took place and to or close to 2,000 Muslims were killed. Or, in fact, the recent uh, violence in 2013 in Muzaffarnagar in North India, where it just happened before the elections, uh, and Allah, almost 100,000 Muslims were displaced because of the violence. The idea is that women's bodies, once raped or once uh, uh, subjected to sexual violence, that leads to a dishonor of the community. So that this it is rooted in the fact that if you rape a woman, you rape a community. And which is why women are specifically targeted and subjected to sub uh, sexual violence in these cases. Uh, so in that light, it's very uh, important to look at that. Also, one would say that it then just not remains about sexual violence of uh, on women in on uh, from certain communities but it also intersects with class caste and majoritarianism because a lot of women who are subjected to violence for example the 2013 violence in muzaffarnagar that i was telling you about where all, close to 100 women were mass raped or all of them were Muslim women, were all working class women so they were farm laborers they used they used to work as daily wagers and which is why they were far more vulnerable than the than the rapists who were landowning uh, feudal uh, people with higher materialist assets and which is why in uh, enjoying a higher degree of influence in the society and which is why taking a action against them legally or taking them to the court or getting them convicted becomes all the more difficult in the absence of any rehabilitative measures for these women who have been subjected to sexual violence. The role of the state in these cases is that um, right now, if we see that um, uh, in, in a lot of these cases, the police or the political party in power has often... Uh, turned a blind eye and in many cases aided this kind of violence. So, for example, in the Muzaffarnagar cases, because the women were filing cases against landed people who were Hindus and dominant castes, and the police people, personnel who were actually uh, uh, responsible for implementing those laws and helping the women, were also from the same dominant caste and from the same religion, and which is why they created all kinds of hurdles in the way of these women to seek justice. So this 
has been a constant case. We have seen, we have heard of examples of Kosalbano in 2002 riots where she was a pregnant Muslim woman and her um, she was attacked and her uh, uh, she uh, by a Hindu mob and finally her she was cut her womb was cut open and the fetus was put out on a sword and this has been symbolic of the kind of violence women are specifically subjected to and targeted. When we look at reporting from you, other prominent uh, journalists, um, there are connections being made to how feminism and how educated um, female protesters is very threatening to this. So if you could establish for us this um, dialectic, what does the ideal woman look like according to a BJP state that institutes sort of a Hindutva, a Hindu Rashtra? And then how does feminism threaten that vision? And, and why do we hear constantly um, these reports of women being told to shut up, stop protesting, um, and that they, they need to just learn their place? Uh, actually, this is a very important question and it needs to be uh, discussed uh, as much as possible. And I'm glad you're asking this. Uh, the thing is that the current Hindutva ideology, which is by the, which is practiced by the BJP and its parent body RSS, is that it's it, it has great parallels with the Nazi uh, regime. So for them, in the Hindutva ideology, the Hindutva ideology is an ideology that believes in creating a Hindu Rashtra, which is a Hindu country. So they want to make India a Hindu country and everybody should follow the tenets of Hinduism. So basically, they're trying to completely homo homogenize a, a country like India, which has been so plural and diverse in nature, and make it into a Hindu country. Now, the Nazi parallel is such that just that in the Nazi uh, uh, ideology, Women are supposed to be mothers and raise able sons to fight to create a Hindu Rashtra. Uh, uh, so basically the role of the woman is to get married, to be in a patriarchal setup, follow the patriarchal orders, follow the patriarchal life that has been assigned for her and become mothers and raise children. So in this, this kind of order, a woman should not have any agency. A woman should not think or have a mind of her own. So I'll give you some examples. For example, they have various um, documents and in various training camps, they train women that they should uh, they should in, be independent in the sense that, quote-unquote, they can pursue higher education if, quote-unquote, their parents allow them. If they can have a career if the husband allows them. So this is something that they teach. For example, in cases of domestic violence, they tell women that just like parents admonish their daughters, similarly, the husband if uh, admonishes them or slaps them, they should uh, accept it and uh, accept it as how things should be. So... Uh, uh, some of the recent examples is that the Hindutva ideology has tried to curtail women who have independent minds by coming up with various theories like love jihad. So now I'm giving you the example of love jihad because it is far more widespread. I personally like to call it Hindutva mansplaining because the idea is that uh, they say that Muslim boys, once they wear denims and goggles and have smartphones and come on a bike, they make 
Hindu girls, quote unquote, fall in love with them and get, uh, and then they get married to them and convert them into Islam, and that's how they uh, they conduct a jihad, which is the, the terminology used in Islam. So now, the why I'm calling it a Hindutva mansplaining is because they think that women basically have no brains, they have no mind of their own, and people can just flash certain things and make them fall in love, and then they would e- easily be vulnerable to any kind of scheme behind it. And to, to do that, for love jihad, they've tried to uh, propagate this in various, various parts. In fact, uh, one and a half, two years back in Uttar Pradesh, which is the most populated state in India, uh, this Hindutva monk called Yogi Adityanath, who is known for his Islamophobic sentiments, he became the chief minister. And as soon as he became the chief minister, he started a squad called Anti-Romeo Squad, which had some people from the police and some local volunteers to check women who were roaming around with their boyfriends and if they were uh, Muslims, then they were subjected to violence and beaten up. So this kind of extreme control over women's bodies, their agencies, is something that is uh, a, a very important element of the Hindutva ideology, which RSS and now the its political wing BJP, which is the party in power, they believe in. And which is why uh, any any woman or any kind of feminist thoughts is completely antagonistic to what they believe in. And that is why they're so scared of it. So something I did not understand at all until I began speaking to uh, India journalists is the scope and scale of the RSS. I still don't because it's, it's really mind-blowing. Um, so the RSS has a women's wing called the Rastra Savika Samiti. And they have this quote where they say they are familyists, not feminists. I'm wondering if you could talk about the Rastra Savika Samiti, their scope, so how widespread they are, the women they target, and what they're trying to do with this logic and campaign of familyists, not feminists. Uh, Rashtra Sevika Samiti, like you pointed out, it is the women's wing of RSS, which believes in uh, the Hindutva ideology and wants to make India a Hindu country. So, uh, there, the the one of the base. So, this is what the tenet of the Rashtra Sevika Samiti is: that they work with women and train them in various kinds of uh, beliefs of the Hindutva system. So, for example. Uh, and why they are targeting women is because I remember attending one of their training camps and they told, they were telling women that once you explain things to one woman, she try, she manages to convert her whole entire family, all her children, her family, her husband, everybody. And which is why they think the scope to work among women is uh, far more productive and can be multiplied at a larger level. So, uh, also, I would say that in the changing times in the last two decades, we've seen more and more Indian women uh, accessing higher education, more of more of them coming out in public spaces, in public domains, and uh, uh, more assertive uh, in terms of their sexuality, in terms of their choice, in terms of their agency, and that is a threat to the 
Hindutva ideology because the moment women start taking decisions for themselves, the moment women say that, okay, I don't want to get married now, I want to have a career. Or the moment they say, I want to marry the person of my choice and not somebody who has been chosen by my family, by the patriarchs of my family from the same caste or religion, that becomes a threat to the Hindutva ideology, which is why Rashtra Sevika Samiti uh, uh, works deeply and in the most remotest corners to influence young girls and women. And that is why they say we are families, not feminists, because the whole, uh, like I said earlier, that the whole idea is that woman is the center of the family where she does the domestic chores, she raises the families, uh, raises the uh, family, the children and everybody and influences them with the Hindutva ideology. So that is why they think it's more important to work amongst women. Something I've heard, but I wanted to specifically ask a journalist who's who's well-versed in um, uh, the local media of India. Um, so uh, there's been great reporting, for example, on how the BJP has utilized uh, WhatsApp, which is uh, ubiquitous throughout India, nearly omnipresent if you have a mobile phone in terms of uh, using it to communicate, how there's a lot of these uh, RSS or BJP affiliated groups who will just send out thousands of messages every day, both to uh, people who already are members, but as well as to potential new recruits. Um, Something that is more nebulous and uh, difficult to understand for me is within the TV and radio uh, and just in general the social media, um, WhatsApp aside, how does one encounter um, both the BJP and some of these themes we've talked about of ethno-supremacy, patriarchy, and sexism? Is it, at this point, um, do we have both sort of implicit and explicit throughout most of Indian media where if I turned on a channel and I didn't know a lot about these hidden networks of power and propaganda, that I would just encounter channel after channel after channel spouting the same government talking points? Or is there still a great deal of diversity um, within these various forms of Indian media? Um, So to boil that all down into a simple question, in your opinion, how widespread are some of these talking points within India media today? And um, what are the forces that are behind uh, these talking points within India media? See, that is something that we are dealing with on an everyday basis, that right now most of our mainstream media is completely compromised and completely uh, drives the government propaganda uh, um, minute by minute on uh, television news channels. So that is something that is extremely, extremely problematic because there is no, uh, there have been several instances where the kind of reports that they have published have been uh, countered by facts and figures and have turned out to be completely wrong. The reason behind it is, like I earlier said, that most of them are owned by our media is completely corporatized to the point that uh, unlike in, in, uh, say, the US or other places, there is a cap on the amount of investment that a corporate house can do in a media uh, organization. In India, we don't have such caps. So, which is why the the uh, one reason is the corporate uh, shares in this because the corporates also have uh, uh, an interest with the with keeping this political party in power because they get 
contracts, they get projects, they get various kinds of leeway in taxes. So many of these people have run away uh, or taken lots of loans from national banks and not returned them. And they have been allowed to be like that by the government. So there is that. Apart from that, yes, WhatsApp has been very notorious in the way Indian information system flows right now because there are thousands of people employed by the IT cell, which is IT cell of BJP, who actually day in and day out put out fake information, put out fake videos. I'll give you one example. I talked about the 2013 Muzaffarnagar riots in North India where uh, 100,000 people were displaced, all of them Muslims. It started out because one of the parliamentarians of uh, uh, one of the member of parliaments, uh, present member of parliaments and a member, senior member of Bharatiya Janta Party, he... Um, circulated a fake video of two boys being brutally thrashed and he said that these are two hindu boys being brutally thrashed by muslims but actually it turned out to it was a video from pakistan from 2010 and because that video was circulated by this mp through his uh, network and it was circulated all through north india that led to this mass uh, scale violence and the killings of 100 people, over 100 mass rapes and 100,000 people displaced. So that is the kind of impact that WhatsApp has. And the BJP right now, they have, because they have the most amount of corporate funding right now, in terms of uh, getting political funds from various places, BJP has the maximum number of uh, funds and which is why they have been able to channelize this kind of propaganda, not just through mainstream media, but also through social media. So uh, they are very organized and there are alternate spaces that are trying to do this and trying to put out investigative reports. So there have been two, three um, consequences of that. One is that the alternate spaces that are coming up do not have that kind of money that a mainstream media organization has. So which is why the reach of an alternate media, free independent media house is not as much. So we are not able to uh, penetrate through the uh, nooks and crannies of this country to put out honest information. And the second thing is that we have increasingly seen that a lot of independent journalists or independent media houses that have put out um, uh, truthful uh, investigative reports in the public domain, they have either been threatened with cases uh, high, uh, not just civil cases, but criminal cases as well. But also, we have seen killings of journalists like Gauri Lankesh, who was killed in 2017, and the people arrested have a direct link to these Hindutva organizations. Uh, and she was critical of this Hindutva ideology, and which is why she lost her life. And we have seen several attacks. In and the criminal cases are, is a new pattern in the Indian media because a lot of Indian journalists, we all grew up with defamation cases filed against us. But the new pattern under this government is that they file criminal cases against journalists. So, for example, I had done a story in 2016 on how the RSS is trafficking children between the age group of 3 to 11 and taking from, the, from northeast India and taking them to Hindu seminaries in Gujarat and Punjab, these, these are two states in India, and uh, brainwash them, indoctrinate them into the Hindu ideology. And I traced all those girls, and that is when I put out that report in the public domain, supplemented by evidence and government papers and uh, 
evidence from statutory bodies in India. There were two criminal cases filed against me. One is criminal defamation, which is this colonial archaic law that we continue to have. But the other one that was filed against me was inciting communal hatred, which is a serious cognizable offense. And while I would say I'm privileged and I write in English and I live in Delhi and I have access and I can seek help. So I have been fighting this case for three years, but a lot of journalists in small town India writing in other Indian languages uh, do not have that kind of privilege or luxury and they cannot afford to pay the legal fees or travel for every court hearing. So that process in itself is a punishment for the journalist, which allows some kind of self-censorship to set in. So next time that, that journalist intends to do a story which is hard-hitting, watertight, they will think of the cases that are filed against them. So this is the new pattern. To build off that, I'd like to turn to a story I found quite interesting. I always like looking at how ideologies are built. Um, because it does away with the notion that any of these uh, ideologies, be they Hindutva, be they white supremacy, be they patriarchy, be they capitalism, are inherent and natural. They're all ideologies that need to be built and sustained. And you wrote a great story um, for the local uh, outlet, The News Laundry, about how India's uh, BJP and affiliates try to indoctrinate the young and vulnerable into, Hudu, uh, into Hindutva. My understanding of the story, and you'll be able to add any context, is essentially it looks at um, uh, sort of a youth center, what we might think of as a YMCA or a center for youth in need uh, within India, that uh, known as a that was known as a hostel, uh, and was taking students in to indoctrinate them. Um, or young men, I should say, to indoctrinate them into Hindutva. I'm going to um, uh, read a full quote, and then I'm going to ask a, a follow-up question, if that's all right. The quote begins uh, as follows. At the hostel, the students wake up at 5 a.m. The shaka, an RSS assembly ritual, commences at 6 a.m. Mango Singh Kataria, the manager of this Sira Brati branch, says... We teach them how to play India ga Indian games like Kabaddi and Koko. We have also come up with a game called Tank War to instill feelings of nationalism in the young boys so that they can protect Bharat Mata. Tank War is a game where each group tries to make a chain and encircle the other group to capture it. The groups are often named India and Pakistan. As we talked, Satyan Rayan Chakrandari, a member of Vidya Bhatrari, the educational wing of the RSS steps in. He announced that he was just passing by. On his arrival, both Amalia and Kataraya stop answering further questions from this reporter. So there are several groups in here that you'll need to clarify for us, but uh, I think both on the story you just mentioned and this one, could you explain um, how centers like this uh, are about trying to indoctrinate the next generation of Indians into Hindutva and why what you took away from this uh, encounter. So uh, first to explain who these people are. So RSS is called Rashtriya uh, Swayam Sevak Sangh, which is the parent organization that believes in the Hindutva ideology. Now this RSS has multiple affiliates uh, focusing on certain things, on certain uh, sectors. For example, here you mentioned Vidya Bharti. Vidya Bharti is the educational wing of the RSS. So uh, it only focuses on the kind of uh, education that children should be given to uh, create a Hindutva Rashtra. 
now uh, the kind of indoctrination here that that is happening so uh, let me say that rss uh, uh, was formed in 1925 so if this we going to see it's almost going to be 100 years since it was formed with the uh, with uh, the the intention of creating a hindu hindu rashtra now the person who assassinated mahatma gandhi nathuram godse was affiliated with rss and once uh, mahatma gandhi was assassinated rss was banned for a number of years by sardar patel who was the first home minister of india uh, rss had also supported uh, the british uh, Uh, as opposed to while there was an independence movement in india and several people were fighting for the independence of india from the british british colonial rule rss supported the british colonial rule so it started with that and then once rss was banned in 1948 when mahatma gandhi was assassinated uh, and it was banned for several years they created multiple uh, affiliated groups focusing on certain parts and they decided to go to the remotest corners of the country to work and especially in the tribal areas so when i talk about like earlier i talked about the bivi lift story which is in northeast india which has multiple uh, tribes of india that stay and here again the the quote that you quoted is again from jhabua which is again a tribal dominated area in central india so what they have tried to do because india is so plural and diverse they have tried to work in the remotest parts where there are no basic communities like school uh, or hospitals and so they start off by doing uh, charity work start off by providing vaccination medicines basic food all that kind of stuff in these remote parts of india and then they go on to uh, indoctrinate them so that's how it works in this case they have been opening hostels is because a lot of these uh, tribal parts of of the country are still um, socioeconomically marginalized and they do not have access and which is why it's sometimes easier to uh, tell the parents or convince the parents that to send their children to these hostels for free education and lodging but once the children come in like i told you they are told to to speak in a certain kind of language they are told the kind of nationalism that you mentioned in this quote also which is extremely uh, rooted in bigotry and hatred for the other country or for the other uh, religions that is something that has been a consistent feature in 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 their uh, in the way they operate similarly like so like vidya bharti focuses on the educational wing uh, rashtra uh, sevika samiti focuses on the women's wing then they have seva bharti which is the welfare wing where there are natural disasters or floods or stuff like that where they step in and through that once they help the local people then they gradually create inroads for further indoctrination of those people so that's how they operate and in the last few years if i give you just a small magnitude to tell you how it has grown till 20 years back there's an indian express report that tells us that 20 years back uh, rss had um, 650 units uh, in northeast india now they have 35000 so that is how they have grown so this is how they've been working for the last so many years and towards the end of like almost 100 years later that is why their presence is so vast and so huge and within um more rural or tribal areas of india um is there a 
grassroots campaigns to oppose these organizations or are they mostly unopposed? So uh, that's why I'm saying that uh, why uh, these things are more important to be debated uh, because they realize that if they work directly, there is opposition. So in Northeast India, when they were directly talking about, because Northeast India is very diverse. It has all kinds of tribes. It has various kinds of religions, Buddhists, Hindus, Muslims, Christians. So they directly trying to talk about Hinduism or Hindutva was very difficult. And which is why they have, uh, they look, they use these surreptitious ways of education, of welfare, of, uh, uh, you know, of, providing aid to people and through that they try to enter so they realize that working directly or countering somebody's religion is not working and which is why they try to they have uh, tried to penetrate through all these other, providing other amenities uh, at least from some of the authors i had read it doesn't seem that the bjp has been able to fully infiltrate uh, the sort of the national army of india um, I'm wondering if you could talk just very briefly and then we'll return to our list of questions. Why do they need to build up sort of this army of foot soldiers? It's not clear to me what they want to do with them. And then what does BJP ideology look like within India's national army? Has the national army been compromised as well? Uh, I wouldn't say that the national army has been compromised yet, but we have seen splinters of... Uh, so there was somebody called Colonel Purohit who was uh, uh, arrested in a couple of years back, and he had a direct uh, 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 role in in a in a uh, in Malagao blast. Malagao is a place where there was there were bomb blasts and several people were killed, and that is a Muslim-dominated area. So Colonel Purohit, he uh, when he was accused, we found that there is a se small set of people within the army who are working for the Hindutva ideology. But largely, I would say that Indian army or Indian armed forces are still not uh, are far away from their influence as of now. But I would also say this, and th that is the reason why the foot soldiers are important, right? So if we see, if we look at the number of mob lynchings that have happened in India in the uh, last four five years. Primarily because there was this rumor that Muslims are consuming beef and beef is cow meat and cow is supposed to be holy in the Hindu religion. Now, this is deeply uh, contested in the history of the Hindu religion and in the country as well. First of all, it's not just Muslims who consume beef. Uh, it is the, the Dalits and various other Hindus uh, in various parts who also consume beef because beef is the cheapest form of protein that is available to working class people who do a hard uh, day of labor every day because the prices are high for everything and that is why they consume beef so that uh, but the this uh, this pre this uh, uh, rumor that uh, came up that only uh, muslims uh, consume beef and hindus don't also arose from north india which is far more feudal and far more uh, let's say casteist in nature uh, so the mob lynchings happened not by people from the state. The mob lynchings happened because RSS had created these foot soldiers all these years. So if you look at the number, if like some, there were almost 100 people were lynched in various parts of the country on a rumor that they're 
transporting cows or smuggling meat or smuggling cows and just on a mere rumor they were lynched by people right then and there and on all these people these people had direct uh, affiliation with these hindutva organizations rss affiliated organizations so they were not st- uh, state people so so the state the people who are elected so for example bjp leaders are elected in various states they want to pretend that they have been democratically elected and which is why they are not sp- sponsoring this kind of violence against uh, people from other religions or communities so which is why these foot soldiers are important to to carry out the agenda on the ground i talked about love jihad earlier uh, in up in uttar pradesh there was a uh, formally a squad was formed but in uh, we have seen this since uh, 2003 in karnataka in uh, uh, gujarat in kerala a lot of these places these people affiliated with rss were the people who were going and thrashing young girls who were found sitting with boys in parks or restaurants on the accusation that that could be a case of love jihad so which is why creation of foot soldiers on the ground is completely is absolutely uh, necessary for an organization like rss to be able to carry out its agenda and still pretend that they are in the world's largest democracy and they are elected by the people and that is why in positions of power thank you for that um explanation it's it's very jarring to see uh, uh these images that are coming out of india of thousands of men marching in formation uh with their khakis and white shirts and uh there's obviously parallels uh, to that in in white supremacy both in the US and uh the EU and these sort of para-state uh organizations are uh quite uh terrifying especially um if you're a progressive or leftist and uh something that needs to be considered in a lot more detail another terrifying thing we have to talk about so we talked a bit uh prior to that aside about the indoctrination of the young in India and how the uh BJP RSS and affiliates uh try to indoctrinate um the youth in India very early on with its ideology um where the BJP uh RSS has seen a lot of pushback uh it seems like is at the university level um and this is returning again to sort of the uh topic of feminism so one of the there's uh many brilliant uh, scholars within India and many brilliant feminists who are affiliated with the university one you chose to capture uh in your uh article for the wire was Dr. Navidita Menon and you describe an incident that uh i think highlights uh how the BJP is trying to attack universities silence universities and get people to shut up. Um so I'm I'm again going to quote in full and then I'll I'll follow up with a question. On March 12th, uh, Suruba Sharma, a leader of the BJP's student wing and joint secretary of the Jawaharlal Nehru University Students Union, filed a complaint at the Vasant Kunj police station in New Delhi against Dr. Navita Menon. Now a professor at the university, Menon was accused of making anti-national remarks by the Hindu right after an edited recording of a lecture she delivered on campus was circulated on social media. Over the phone I asked him, Sharma, what he thought the role of a teacher was. A teacher's role is to give the right directions to students, he said. Instead of helping the students meet their professional goals, traitors like her are creating a war within the country by instigating people to think against it. Is this what they get their salaries for? 
So in Mr. Sharma, it seems like we have a very sort of um, blunt um, individual who, who we can sort of better understand the BJP's viewpoint on universities. Basically, shut up and, and do as you're told. Could you explain um, the BJP's strategy of attempting to control or silence uh, academics uh, within India's universities and why the descent of people like Dr. Menon is so threatening to their ideology of Hindutva and patriarchy? I think it's it's a very good moment to talk about the role, the what they think of Indian universities are and why they're so afraid of Indian universities. So let me start by saying that in the last four, uh, the, in the last five and a half years, there has been a, increasingly um, the attacks on the public universities in India have grown by uh, the state. So let me start by small things like not appointing enough teachers, not paying them salaries, uh, appointing uh, increasing contractualization of teachers, or uh, or increasing the number of ad hoc teachers, uh, cutting funds for the universities, uh, and let me say the public universities in India have a big role, have a massive role in the education of, of students because it's far more affordable, it's far cheaper than, uh, the, uh, uh, than the private universities that have come up. Public universities have, the, have been the reason why we have seen a number of students from extremely socioeconomically marginalized backgrounds accessing higher education and making a life for themselves. And this becomes extremely important in the context of women, because in India, in the, ki the kind of misogyny that exists, where uh, young girls are always seen as a burden by their family and they are seen as better off being married off rather than have a, having a career because the family would rather use that money as dowry to get the girl married instead of investing in, a higher, in her higher education. The only way of uh, lots of ma uh, majority of the Indian women can access higher education is because mm. of the public universities that are available. And which is why if you, you crack down on public universities, it immediately means scuttling the ed higher education of a number of women students. So starting from that, and then the descent of professors like Dr. Menon, because public universities, uh, in opposition to the private universities that have come up in India in the last decade, which have an exponentially higher fees and were always governed by the whims and fancies of the governments in power, and which is why they do not dissent, a voice like uh, Dr. Menon in public universities is extremely important because it teaches students not just to absorb what is being taught to them, but also question and critique. Because a critical consciousness is the most basic thing that any uh, healthy democracy should have anywhere in the world. And the number of uh, attacks that we have seen, we have seen somebody like Rohit Vemula, a Dalit student from Hyderabad Central University who committed suicide in 2015 because he was asking questions from the university administration and the the administration stopped his fellowship and he was the only he was a first generation literate from his family and because that fellowship stopped he couldn't sustain himself and was facing discrimination and he finally committed suicide 
we've also seen a brutal attack on something some place like jawaharlal their university in india which has had extremely uh, brilliant record of uh, getting students and academics uh, from the most remotest parts of the country from the most socio economically marginalized backgrounds and coming up and turning into brilliant professionals and brilliant uh, uh, thought leaders so this and because this government is so afraid is so uh, dismissive of dissent debate i'm not even talking about uh, uh, critique or you know attacks i'm talking about the culture of debate that should exist in a in a democracy like india is built because public universities are giving platform to students from various nooks and corners of this country to come and study and question and ask and that is why this uh, this government is extremely critical of it extremely brutal we have seen the uh, recent attacks on jamia millia university one of the most um, uh prominent universities in in uh, new delhi where number of people from all kinds of backgrounds again access education and because they have tried to crack down on it several young girls had to go back home and that was their only chance of access uh, accessing higher education so which is why the government does not want people to come out and think independently think out of the box or question the hindutva ideology that they are trying to use to homogenize the entire country and which is why these attacks continue you have this uh, interesting piece in uh, al jazeera where you discuss uh, the role of uh, female protesters and you choose to focus on the university i'm wondering if you could talk a bit about uh, what those individuals said to you that that's really stuck with you and um within uh these types of questions i'm always very interested are we seeing sort of intersectionality so i'm very interested in are we seeing women from different class backgrounds are we seeing different women from different uh religious or caste backgrounds what what have you taken away from this piece you wrote in al jazeera on female protesters and how have you seen or not seen intersectionality among women uh, as they protest? Uh, uh, in the in the recent protests since December twelfth, since the Citizenship Amendment Act was uh, passed in the Indian Parliament, which is extremely sectarian and uh, discriminatory in nature, we've seen several uh, women on the on the streets. Uh, this piece, in this piece, I particularly wanted to talk about because everybody across the media suddenly started talking about how there are so many women protesting, and so I just wanted to talk that what is the reason for them, and when I it's it's actually very interesting because the first thing when I asked uh, a student who was protesting at Jamia Millia Islamia University that people are calling you first time protesters is is this your first time? She literally like scolded me and she said, "Do we look like first time protesters to you? Because we have been out on the streets uh, for ever and ever." And to just to give a background to that, in two thousand twelve. in india we saw a massive anti rape movement uh, in december 2012 a, a girl from delhi 23 year old paramedic student was brutally gang raped inside a bus and that kind of triggered uh, outrage across the country where several people came out and demanded action against not just the rapists but changes which actually led to changes in the uh anti rape laws in the country so it was a massive movement but at the same time it was also a kind of um 
it was also a kind of moment that was uh, uh, that created or popularized the culture of protests in india uh, and i would not say that it didn't exist earlier but i would say in the recent past that has been one of the most impressed like uh, thing that has impressed uh, people and stayed in their minds now because it was an anti rape movement and it talked about rape there were all kinds of questions that uh, opened up around the question of gender disparity that exists in a patriarchal country like india as it exists elsewhere in the world and from that to to now in the last 7 years we have seen uh several of several cases of sexual harassment that have come in we have seen number of movements talking about accessing more public spaces for women because the that girl who was gang raped in 2012 had uh, watched a film at 9:30 at night and taken a bus and so a lot of people were saying that oh because she was out at night she was raped so, so this is always this misogynist argument is used or the narrative of security is often used against women that don't step out because it's not safe for you we don't uh, care about uh, you not being independent but don't step out so that is often used against women so since then we have seen number of movements that have been around gender but the intersectionality yes it has been not as much in the popular discourse in the mainstream media that has at least i mean i in my experience as a journalist for the last 13 years it's only after 2012 i could see that if you pitch a story around rape or sexual violence the organization would publish it because earlier they were always dismissive of it and called it bleeding heart or stuff like that so it did create that space to talk about sexual violence but it did not still create uh, enough space to talk about the intersectionality behind it so for example nobody would talk about a dalit woman who is raped but if if a if a if a woman from a middle class background in a in a big city or in a metropolitan city is raped it you it would get uh, the kind of space that needs to be given so we are still battling with those questions uh, for example the women of the muslim, the rape of the muslim women that i talked about in the muzaffarnagar violence case they were not uh, they just happened a few months after the 2012 rape that triggered this kind of movement the muzaffarnagar rapes were not discussed as much so there is always a class and a caste uh, or a religion angle that uh, 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 when it comes to intersectionality that needs to be explored more and hasn't been explored enough but having said that um that uh, it's only now that can we can see that the women on the streets now are not just from a certain uh, privileged background but also from across sections so things have moved from that point to where it is now but i would say there is still a lot of scope to uh, explore the intersectionality behind it right now we see a lot of for example there's a place called shaheen bagh where uh, near the jamia millia university where number of women from uh, the uh, the local neighborhoods come out every day to sit out in protest and probably a lot of them have been able to come out because in the last 7 years there has been discussion about access to public spaces for women and at any point in time uh during the day and that has enabled them to come out we look at sort of the howdy modi event uh that was recently organized in Houston Texas um we look at the recent election of Boris Johnson we look at the rise of far right forces or 
of uh, a figure like Justin Trudeau being able to call himself a liberal while wearing black and brown face and uh, in general behaving as a racist. Um, I'm wondering for you, when you talk to international colleagues uh, or uh, white colleagues, how you explain to them anti-CIA and CAA, CIA too, (laughs) Um, anti-CAA protests and some of the themes we've talked about today that may seem particular to India. How do you explain to Western or white colleagues that no, these are in fact part of larger uh, fights that uh, progressives internationally need to uh, be aware of and need to start thinking about. Great that you asked me this because recently I was in the West, in North America, in several parts, and uh, it, 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 I kind of kind of observed this that each time I would talk about the persecution of. Uh, Muslims in India or in South Asia, there wasn't much interest. But the the moment I would mention the church or Christians who were also targets of this Hindutva ideology, everybody would talk about it. I would say that there is a global Islamophobia that exists and which is why the Western world is also not waking up each time we talk about how the Muslims are being persecuted in India. Uh, I would also say that there is a kind of, uh, let's say, ignorance uh, uh, ignorance coupled by the kind of diplomatic affairs that are going on in the con- in in the world, where all the autocrats of the world have suddenly decided to join hands, whether it's Bolsonaro from Brazil or whether it's Trump from US, or uh, this is Modi uh, in India, because Bolsonaro from Brazil has been invited in India for our Republic Day celebrations on 26th January by Narendra Modi. So the death spots are joining hands. But I would also say while in uh, internationally or let's say not internationally, but while in the Western media, there is a lot of discussion about Erdogan in Turkey or the kind of uh, human rights violations by the Bolsonaro government in Brazil, while there's a lot of discussion about what Trump is doing, there is not much conversation about Modi and the kind of persecution that he is funding and his political organization is funding in India. So there is that uh, ignorance that exists, and which is why we've even when we've seen several kinds of several mob lynchings in the last uh, five years, people being lynched because they are Muslims, people being killed in police and police shootouts because they are Muslims on petty charges of you know stealing a, a dollar or five dollars or something. To to that point, there hasn't been much attention that has been paid to it. The CA should actually, it is only because of the anti-CA protests that we have now finally seen this kind of discourse in the Western media where they finally woken up to the kind of brutality that people from certain uh, religions and communities in India are being subjected to. And it's high time that we start looking at the Nazi parallels here. We have detention camps that are being built all over the country for people from specific communities, in this case, Muslims, who are being threatened that if they do not have the kind of uh, documents or the kind of documents that the state prescribed, then they will not be Indian citizens and they will be sent to detention camps. So if we can talk about the detention camps in China, why why are we not talking about the detention camps that are being built in India? The Modi earlier was denied visa in the United States for several years because of his role in the 2002 Gujarat riots, which led to the killings of 2,000 Muslims. It's only now everybody is coming together and 
turning a blind eye to the kind of human rights violations that are happening in India. So I'm assuming that um, you've been invited to speak at prominent uh, women's organizations, at prominent uh, journalism um, associations. I'm wondering, so for you personally, I guess it's always strange when you talk to people because as far as I can tell, you're not making millions. You don't have a a daily show or MSNBC show. Um, And you've obviously risked quite a bit in your career as a journalist um, with colleagues who've been killed, with, uh, I'm sure, a daily sexist uh, vitriol of violence and hate that you have to wade through every time you engage with social media or um, when you report these stories, do you have sort of a personal metaphor either from your own life or from what you've heard from some of these people you've interviewed, these victims of larger forces that sort of explains what animates you and does what powers you, you think, is it part of a larger chain of stories that you believe can help us build links between an India, between a Brazil, between a U.S., and all people suffering currently in the world. Um, so I guess that what I'm asking is sort of what gives you the strength to do what you do, and do you see it as part of a, a larger chain of strengths um, from women and from activists globally that can maybe help us change things for the better? I would. I, I have always believed this, that it is like any of the battles that I am fighting or any uh, any woman in my situation is fighting it it is driven by a lot of support and energy from people who we know or people we don't know in my case i was uh, in my family uh, i was the first girl to go to another city to get higher education and that led to a lot of trouble in my family because uh, it was against the family's honor and could be, bring disrespect. And as a result, my father didn't visit me for three years. And then journalism was not seen as a good profession for good girls. So girls are only supposed to be teachers or doctors and be in docile professions and not as journalists. But uh, I got, uh, once I started working, I, I realized that this is not just my story alone. A lot of women have also battled, fought Uh, similar battles or even worse because I still come from a privileged background but not many other girls too so we I uh, personally just as a woman I have uh, got a lot of support and my energy has been fueled by the stories of people around me as a journalist I would say I see my my role as somebody who documents things who which has an archival value because we always often uh, this is a rhetoric thing that we say that journalism is the first draft of history to, today what is happening 50 years down the line if somebody wants to know what happened did somebody say that children were being indoctrinated did somebody say that Muslims were being targeted and killed by police in shootouts did somebody say that there were sectarian rights and women were mass raped so, I would have written that and that will somewhere be there in this 
public domain in the world so that i essentially see myself as that the support often comes from a lot of women journalists i would say because a lot of us are apart from the criminal cases legal cases that we are fighting and fighting our families at the same time because they are not very supportive uh, because of the patriarchal order of things we get, get a lot of support from each other to be able to talk and to be able to move forward so my strength comes from a lot of women around me and women journalists around me because the men even in the in terms of press freedom if you see in india a lot of our editorial bodies a lot of our press associ- association bodies are uh, dominated by middle aged or older male editors who would speak and who are very close to the power centers so they would not mostly speak up they completely spineless because they have their own vested interests but the women because they have nothing to lose they are more vocal and they can speak up in a more independent and fair manner uh neha it was a pleasure speaking with you today um to conclude where can people find out more about you what's a good place to find you obviously we'll link to your website and then if people want to help or are curious how would you suggest they do so in a way that um is building solidarity and not hijacking the narrative um taking in the full complexity of these protests in a way where they are actually offering support i have an a blog which basically is an archive of my work it's it's called uh, neha-dikshit.blogspot.com uh, and which is which is an archive of all my work but talking about solidarity uh, i would say like you said for many many of us i think we are we the first thing is to acknowledge our privilege even and the privilege uh, has various degrees so for example me as a woman i may have less privilege but if i am an upper caste hindu middle class woman which i am in this country i have far more privilege over a dalit working class woman in this country and which is why i can be an ally we should always uh, work be allies of various movements but we should be able to follow instead of leading everything so if if it's a movement of a of a dalit working class woman it is her who should be leading and not me i should follow and that if if we kind of work on that that will help us in bring, building larger solidarities amongst us uh how to help these protests i think the first and foremost that we require is that we need to start talking about what is happening here in this country what is happening about this kind of passing a law so what is legal and what is illegal is legal right and, and is illegal always wrong because the nazi law or the way hitler operated they also passed certain laws right now we need to talk about the islamophobic tendencies of of the of narendra modi and his political party we need to talk about the serious human rights violations we need to talk about the attack on press freedom and i kind of like i said earlier i see it missing in the international discourse it's high time we wake up to it